Hey friends, I'm Brian Doak and this is George Fox Talks Theology. This season on the Theology Channel, we are going to do a new thing. Instead of being here in the studio, which we are for most of our episodes, as you know, we're going to bring you live theology events from the campus of George Fox University. Some of these might be planned lectures in the evenings and some of these might be a classroom environment um, where we're teaching our students about scripture. But whatever the case, you got to imagine yourself in a live setting with an audience there. And if you're watching these, of course, on YouTube, you can see it. And if you're listening, you can think about it and, pl and place yourself right there in the seat of that audience. Really excited for these because they're all so good. We hope you enjoy. So a little bit about me. I was that kid whose parents would ground them from reading because all I ever wanted to do was to be alone in my bedroom with a book. Now, don't get the wrong idea. I'm not talking about high-class literature here. I'm talking about, like, trashy Christian romance when I was probably 14, 15. Um, fantasy, not really sci-fi. I was never quite the sci-fi person. But just, like, like, pretty trashy novels, I was there. Um, pop fiction, anything that would just capture my imagination. And my parents didn't really spend a lot of time monitoring my reading. It was like, you want to read? Great, here are books. And so I read voraciously and gobbled things up. Um, I was also in a household where my parents were Christian people, but were not particularly um, mature in their faith at that stage. They had kind of come to faith uh, and returned to faith when I was you know, a little kid. And so they were kind of leaving me on my own in terms of my own study of scripture, my own reading of the Bible. Uh, my, you know, they would take me to church and they'd disappear to some growing up church. And I was kind of on my own. And these, I had these novels and I had my Bible and I just kind of read. And that's what I did. And I didn't think much about what I was doing. But as I got older and started to attend, you know, more youth groups and stuff like that, the Bible started to become the Bible. And for those of you who have grown up, especially in evangelical culture, you know what I'm talking about. Like, this is not a book. This is the book. And the things in here mean something. They mean something different from the way novels mean something. They mean something different from the way that poetry means something. And I found that as I was, you know, brought into the text in this way, the text became less and less interesting. Don't get me wrong, there were still beautiful passages of poetry that I would, you know, just like stop on a verse and just like the way the words sounded. But somehow the Bible, like the stories in the Bible, I knew them all too well. You know, you've read them a million times and you already know the answer from the minute you hear, today we're going to talk about Jesus and the woman at the well. And you go, yep, heard it before. That's right, she had five husbands. The one she's with now isn't her husband. Jesus talks to her, she's a Samaritan woman. He could have gone through a different way, but he didn't. He chose to go through Samaria, and the point is God's here for everyone, and someday we're gonna worship in spirit and truth. Yep, heard it before. Some of you know that experience of the Bible. Um, funny enough, I ended up finding myself uh, a high school English teacher, first in Budapest, Hungary, and then in Sydney, Australia. And I taught at primarily boys' schools. So I discovered in those contexts as a teacher that you have to be on your guard. So the school I taught at in Australia was all boys until they hit grade 10, and then they brought in some girls. The school I was at in Hungary was 90% boys, because it was like an engineering math science school, and it was 90% boys all the way through grade 13. And I discovered when you're trying to teach Shakespeare to a bunch of 14-year-old boys, it can be like being in front of like a really hostile audience. 
So you have to be on your guard. You have to be asking questions that shock them and surprise them and make them laugh or undermine everything they came into the classroom thinking. You have to make them get up out of their seats and start acting out scenes in front with, yes, that's right, Hamish, you have to be Juliet and you better do a good job at it. And all the giggles that go along with that if you're a you know, 14-year-old boy in an all-boys school. After a while, my husband and I decided we weren't going to do that anymore. Um, we, we kind of hit this stage in life, some of you will hit in a few years, where you realize you have one of two choices. Choice number one is stay in your very good job, buy some property and start having babies and join the growing up world. Or choice number two is quit your very good jobs, take the little savings you have and go do something totally crazy because God forbid you actually grow up and become a mature, responsible adult. We thought about it and prayed about it and chose option number two. So we quit our two very good jobs, packed up what we wanted to keep onto a boat, and moved to Vancouver, Canada, where we both decided to do master's degrees at Regent College. We didn't know what we would do next. But hey, we were in our you know, late 20s, we didn't have kids, why not go live somewhere very close to very good skiing, and study a bit while we're at it. And. I heard lecturers there who seemed to have a different relationship to scripture than the relationship I had developed. I believed in the Bible. I believed in the God of the Bible. I knew that God was good. I knew that this text was meant to do something to me, but it wasn't doing anything to me anymore. But I heard people open up this text and it was like it was alive as they would speak about it. And I was amazed and mesmerized by what they could do. But I couldn't do that. And one day I was sitting in uh, the computer lab. You guys know what a computer lab is? This is like the ancient days of the you know, mid-2000s. Um, or in 2008, 2009, that sort of era. They had a special software on the Regent um, computer lab computers that was like help you with exegesis stuff. So you could like click on words and it would tell you the Greek and what other text that word had appeared in. It wasn't available like just online yet. So I was in there working on my exegesis paper on the baptism of John, or oh, sorry, John baptizing Jesus. And I had this moment where I realized, I read the Bible really dumb. Like as in, both like really stupidly, <laughs> and also like that it just falls silent on me. See, I could open up to any passage and it doesn't matter how brilliant it is, it started to sound like, sing barren women, you who never bore children, burst into song for a shout of joy, you who were never in labor because there are more children to the desolate women than your husband says the Lord, enlarge the place of your tent. And the next, you know, my brain's just elsewhere. Somehow I could hear the words, but they meant nothing. And at that moment I realized what I needed to do. I needed to finish my degree in theology, but I needed to not study theology anymore. I needed to study literature because I knew that was not my experience of reading any other text in the world. I could pick up a novel or a poem and I could turn that text inside out and upside down and find all sorts of crazy things happening and have all sorts of questions about the characters and why they're doing what they're doing or the way the language was working or why the narrator says this thing but the character does this thing and what does that contradiction mean? But when I opened the Bible, I couldn't see those things. It was like I had blinders on. And so, finished my degree in theology and did a PhD in lit because I needed to figure out how to read really well. I needed to be sure that my habits as a reader were so well established that I couldn't pick up any text, not even a sacred text that I knew inside and out, and stop reading like a reader. But that's a really dangerous thing to do. 
Because here's the thing, oftentimes when we ask questions of the Bible, once you start asking one question, you start finding you have a lot of other questions, especially those literary type questions. And I started this out by saying the idea of the Bible as literature strikes me as funny now because, I mean, what is the Bible if it is not a collection of ancient narrative, law, poetry, prophetic visions, biographies, letters that have been culturally formative and valued by a community over the centuries? I mean, that's like the definition of literature, right? The, the Bible is, it's not the Bible as literature, the Bible is literature. But the problem is when we start bringing literary questions to the Bible, we can find that they can be scary. So, I thought today, rather than just keep telling you about all of this hypothetically, what might be a fun thing to do would be to dive in and to show you what I mean by some of these dangerous questions that reading the Bible as literature asks, and then the ways in which recognizing that this is a literary test and asking those sorts of questions actually helps to bring us to a deeper understanding of the real goodness of God that is beyond what we can comprehend but that doesn't always look quite the way we want it to either. And for those of you who are in Lit 111 with me right now, the good news is the passage we're gonna look at right now is the part we're doing for Unit 2, so just you know, consider this like preparation for that class as well, a little bit of double dipping in your studies today. All right, um, I understand you have read recently the story of Abraham. Y'all remember that? Why don't you turn to the person next to you and quickly recap what are the three most important things that happened in Abraham's life? What do you think? All right, can I get an answer from the back corner over here? What's one really important thing in Abraham's life? Just go ahead and shout it out. Yeah. Covenant with God. Yeah, I mean, if there's one thing that you're going to remember about Abraham, it's covenant, right? Absolutely. Good. Someone over here, a second important thing about Abraham. Just shout something out. He almost killed his son. Yeah, that's a really important point about Abraham and one we're going to talk about. And one thing over here. Yeah, he pimped his wife out twice. <laughs> that definitely did not turn up in the version of the story I was taught in Sunday school. Now, I will say, I was reading this um, text with some students last year, and someone pointed out, you know, he does do it twice. Is she in on it? Is this like, you know, Sarah being, you know, trafficked in the way that women in the ancient world frequently were, or is she totally in on it and they're working the long con? and this is how they're gonna get rich. I don't know, I will leave that for you guys to ponder and debate further in this class. Either way, it's really questionable whether your wife is in on it or not, it's still a super questionable thing to do, right? We, we don't generally encourage you to go into such industries here at George Fox, just, just so you know. And yet, this is what Abraham does. And if you notice, if you actually follow the contours of the story from Genesis 12 through Genesis 22, You'll see that God calls Abraham, very next scene, Abraham pimps wife to Pharaoh. A few more things happen. Abraham has another like really important experience with God. And Abraham falls flat on his face again. Abraham has another really important experience with God. Abraham pimps out wife to Abimelech. One of the things, if you draw, like put all the things out on a timeline that you start to see is it's like every time God seems to come to Abraham and something really important seems to happen, Abraham falls flat on his face as a human being. Why would God pick such a person? I mean, like, 
seriously. <laughs> Wasn't there anyone who had just a slightly better moral compass in the entire ancient Near East to choose? One of the things we have to get over when we read the Bible as literature is our preconceived notions that the characters in the Bible are somehow good. Abraham is not a good person. Abraham's not a bad person either. Abraham's a person. He, like me, seems to do really well sometimes and make shockingly huge life mistakes at other times. For some of you, you think, I'm not there yet. Yeah, just wait a few years. Especially if you're displaced. One of the things that marks Abraham's story is wandering. The beginning of his story, when God calls him, he's told to leave his land, his family, and his father's household. And it moves from kind of like the big, like kind of, you know, nation sort of, not, it's not a nation state in the modern way, but you know, kind of a bigger community, more immediate community, your father's very household. And you think about what happens when you are displaced. When you are not in the context where you, where you are known, where you have friends, where you have support networks, one of the things that happens is you can find yourself doing things you never would have dreamt you would do. Because you're scared. We know Abraham was scared. That's why he pimps Sarah out to Pharaoh, because he's afraid Pharaoh will kill him to take his wife otherwise. Fear can lead us to do really dangerous things. Sometimes we do it because we think we can't get caught or we see an easy option, and we do things that in our nice, comfortable world of our parents' home and our faith communities we would have never dreamt were possible for us. That's a deeply human story. But if we think of Abraham as, Father Abraham had many sons and many sons, and that's kind of all we have is this kind of hero of the Bible who had a bunch of kids and, you know, was great, well, we're not going to see what's really going on there. So that's the first thing when you're reading the Bible as literature. You have to be able to ask, wait a minute, if this was any other character in any other book, would I be so happy with the life choices I am seeing modeled right now? Would I let them get away with this if this was in a novel or if this was in a movie? I want us to turn back to the idea of sacrificing his son. So this is Genesis 22. I you think about this for a moment. Imagine, it's a few years from now, you've all got your kids, your little play groups going on, and one of the other parents tells you one day, so um, I had this really intense religious experience last night, and God has told me that I need to go up onto Mount Hood and sacrifice Danny. Turn to the person next to you, your little group. What would you do when your friend confides in you that they've had this profound religious experience and they know in their soul that God has told them to take their child up to Mount Hood and kill it? <laughs> All right, quick show of hands. How many of you would be like, mate, if God has called you to do that, that is what you need to do. How can I support you in this endeavor? Hands up, how many of you would say that? One, two, three, four, all right. How many of you would be calling Child Protective Services or alerting some mental health officials? Yeah, the vast majority of us. Can I just say, like, 
In our world, if someone ever tells you God has told them to sacrifice their child, answer number two is the right answer. No, for real. There is no circumstance in today's world in which I will tell you that you should definitely support this person in what is obviously a horrible thing to do. You don't sacrifice children. Was child sacrifice a thing in the ancient world? Yes, in some places, even in the ancient Near East. But even then, it wasn't a great thing to do. As in, like, I don't think people were comfortable with it. And here's why I say that. Let's turn our attention to the text with that in mind, that most of us would be calling Child Protective Services on this guy. Sometime later, God tested Abraham, and he said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah, Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain I will show you. Take your son, your only son, the son that you love. Remember, this has just come immediately after Ishmael and Hagar have been sent away because Sarah didn't like the threat that Ishmael was to her son. And it's interesting, if you read carefully through that that narrative, one of the things you'll see is that that Abraham really loved Ishmael. In fact, at one point he asks God, why don't you just make Ishmael the child of the promise? I mean, he's watched this kid grow up. It's his son. Of course he loves Ishmael. And of course that is a threat to Sarah's son. Because what if somehow Abraham doesn't, you know, take care of Isaac? What if Ishmael is the favorite? And so Sarah has Ishmael sent away. She sees the boys messing around and doesn't want him there anymore, and so he's sent away. But then, when they go off into the wilderness of Beersheba, um, Ishmael and Hagar, we see a little cut to Abraham making a treaty for wells in Beersheba. So think about this as literature, as cinema, as the way we would tell an epic story. You see her and her son walking off into the desert, into the wilderness, which is not a safe place generally, let alone, you know, in the ancient world. And then the next scene you cut to Abraham in the same wilderness, making treaties for water. Why would he be doing that? What is implied in that moment? probably that he's looking after Hagar and Ishmael and making sure they're going to have water because Hagar's story ends with her seeing a well. And the next thing we see is Abraham securing water rights. There's a sense that Abraham really cared about Hagar and Ishmael. And they've just been sent away. I can't help but wonder if when God says, take your son, your only son, the son that you love, if what he's doing is reminding Abraham of some important things. Your son, which one I have two your only son. Oh yeah, that's right. One of them got sent away and I'm still bitter about it. The one that you love and sacrifice him. When you lose someone who is very important to you, sometimes the person who is the cause of that or somehow your brain connects as the cause of that can not be so well loved anymore. I wonder how Abraham was feeling about Isaac after Ishmael was sent away, if there wasn't a bit of a grudge toward Sarah and even toward Isaac. And here God is saying, take him, sacrifice him. 
And I wonder if at that moment, Abraham suddenly realized how much he loved his son. You don't have kids, most of you. And I can only tell you there's something weird that happens with these little people and their little hands and their little soft cheeks that no matter how much you think you don't want them or like them, it kind of takes over your soul in a way. And I can imagine doing all sorts of horrible things and putting up with all sorts of stuff, but like, if you start threatening Abby or Danny, <laughs> no. There is no way I would do what Abraham did. Except Abraham does it. But notice who he doesn't tell. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. Did he tell Sarah? Doesn't look like it. <laughs> Do you blame him? <laughs> so Sarah, you know that son that was promised, that took forever to have, you finally have your baby? Um, God's told me we have to kill him. How do you think Sarah would have responded to that message? Not very well. <laughs> That's putting it mildly. <laughs> yeah, I don't think he tells Sarah what he's doing. When he had cut through the, um, sorry, he took two of the services on Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servants, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship, and then we will come back to you. You notice what he's done again? Who's he taking with him? Isaac, but not the servants. I think this starts to tell us about how well the plan to sacrifice Isaac would have gone, on, gone over, even in the ancient world, even in a context where child sacrifice might have sometimes happened. He doesn't tell his wife. He doesn't take the servants with him. That's sort of cutting people out of what he's getting ready to do. If we're reading as thinking about literature, thinking about how stories are told, bringing the same sort of hard questions to the text that we would bring to any novel or any poem or any movie, we'd be like, yeah, he knows what he's doing is a little questionable because he's not inviting anyone else to join him. And notice as well, um, he hasn't told Isaac what's coming either. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac. Here, you carry the wood up the hill, son. There's something really kind of macabre in that scene, right? The wood that will be used to burn him being already bound to his back for him to hike up the mountain. And he himself, that's Abraham, carried the fire and the knife. Notice the sparsity of those details. Imagine that knife in Abraham's hand. I imagine it felt very heavy. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father, Abraham, Father, yes, my son? The fire and the wood are here, Isaac said. But where is the lamb for the burnt offering? What do you say to your son in that moment? Well, son, 
we follow a strange and mysterious God and sometimes he asks for us to do really difficult things and he has asked me to sacrifice you. Abraham lies. Well, he doesn't exactly lie, but he certainly isn't forthcoming with the truth. <laughs> Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. <laughs> Is that a statement of faith and hope? Yes. Is it a statement of evasion? Absolutely. <laughs> because you see, we forget when we read the Bible as the Bible and we already know the answers because we know the ending before we even start the beginning. Abraham doesn't know in this narrative moment that God is going to provide a ram. As far as he knows, he is walking up that hill to kill his son. One son has been sent away and the other one is now going to be dead. And this is where following God has gotten him. And he keeps walking. And he keeps walking. And the two of them went on together. When they reached the place God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Imagine that moment. Turn to the people around you. You're Isaac. You suddenly realize, wait, dad is tying me up and putting, wait a minute. I mean, do you just go along? Do you just sit there passively? Just let him, like, what, what, what happens in that moment? What do you do? Talk, uh, talk to the people around you. What would you do? Yeah. Fight for your life. That seems a very sensible thing to do under such circumstances. How many of the rest of you would be fighting for your life at that moment? Yeah. It's interesting, later in Genesis, when Jacob is speaking, he twice, and I am sorry, I don't remember the chapter right now, um, but twice refers to the God of Abraham and the terror of Isaac, is the way he describes the God of Israel. And you know what? That makes a lot of sense to me, actually, after this story. I think I might be a little terrified of this God of my father's as well, after everything that went, happen on, went on on that mountain happened the God of Abraham and the terror of Isaac. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son your only son, the only one you have left. Abraham looked up, and there in the thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the place the Lord will provide, and to this day it is said on the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. And then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham from heaven a second time and said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars of the sky and as the sands on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities, of their enemies, and through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. Then Abraham returned to his servants and they set off together for Beersheba, and Abraham stayed in Beersheba.
Where's Isaac? Did you notice Abraham did not come down the mountain with Isaac? He comes down alone. Now, my guess is, if I were Isaac, given the very wise advice to fight for one's life, I would have seen Dad messing with the ram in the thicket. I would have gotten out of there and run. What do the rest of you think? Where's Isaac? Turn to the person next to you. Where's Isaac? What do you, uh, any, any ideas? Where's Isaac? Sorry? Still up there, hiding. <laughs> Went and found a thicket and hid. That's also a very good option. I like that. Other ideas? Ran down before him? Yeah, saw his chance, got away. Yeah. We don't see Isaac in the text again until after Sarah's death. And he is not living in Beersheba with his father. And Abraham has to send a servant to go arrange a wife for him who then goes and finds Isaac. Yeah. I had a student point out last term that Abraham really did sacrifice Isaac. I mean, sure, Isaac survives, but Isaac doesn't come down the mountain with Abraham. We don't see Isaac and Abraham together again as a sort of happy family. That relationship was forever changed. Abraham really did sacrifice his son because he did not have his son with him again not in the way that he had before, not in the way of the child who says, Father, that was their last conversation. God will provide. I wonder as a parent how in the world Abraham was able to do that. I mean, was, was he just crazy? What in the world could compel a parent to be willing to walk their child up a mountain and tie them to an altar on top of wood and raise the knife and have every intention of going through with it but for the angel of God that stays the hand? And I've thought about that a lot because, like I said, I, I can't, like, my own kids, I, I can't imagine hurting them. It's a repulsive thought on the, on, a, on the level of the gut that I didn't understand before I had kids. And I wonder if it's possible until you feel that strange animalistic thing that connects you to your own offspring. But then I think about the rest of Abraham's story. Time and again, Abraham has seen God intervene. You know, God talks to Abraham a lot, well, three or four times. But God steps in and curses Pharaoh's household to protect Sarah when she is a sexually vulnerable woman in the harem of the king. God steps in and rescues Hagar when she has run away because Sarah has been abusing her. 
and he leads her back and tells her, look, you're not going to have another daughter who's going to be born into the same sort of slavery that makes you vulnerable to the whims of your master and mistress. You're not going to have another daughter who will, like you, be used for her body and the womb that can provide. You're going to have a son, and he's going to be a wild ass of a man. His hand will be against everyone. But I think for Hagar in that moment, that must have sounded tremendously good to know that she was going to not have to look, watch another daughter be used in the way she had been used. That she was not going to have to worry about what that was going to look like, but that she would have a son, which is a form of like security in the ancient world. She would have a son who would be able to protect her, to look after her. She'd have someone, she would have a future. Abraham saw, I'm sure he heard the story, of how God saw her and intervened and saved her. He probably heard the story of what happened at Sodom and Gomorrah and how Lot offered up his daughters, because, you know, that's going to make everything better. Don't gang rape my guests, gang rape my daughters instead. God clearly does not approve, and he rescues Lot's daughters from a horror that their lives would not have recovered from. Abraham's probably heard about that. And finally, he's seen again. God protecting Sarah in the household of Abimelech, sending another curse when she is once again made sexually vulnerable by Abraham's deceits and fears and whatever else is going on with Abraham that he would pimp his wife out a second time. I mean, it's fear, right? He's afraid, again, that that Abimelech's going to kill him because Sarah's beautiful. Time and again, Abraham has seen that God steps in when people are vulnerable. And now it's his son. And you have to realize, like, as a parent, when you're raising kids, there are so many things that can get them that you don't have control over. For a long time now, I have been very afraid every day when I say goodbye to my little boy and he goes off to now third grade because what if somebody comes into his classroom with a semi-automatic weapon? What if this is the last time I get to say goodbye to my little boy? I have a four-year-old cousin in South Carolina who eight months ago was given eight months to live because of a very aggressive form of brain cancer. And this is in the modern world. Illness, violence, dumb accidents. So many things can make time stop and everything change in a day and suddenly the life you'd planned for you and your kids and your family fall apart. And that's in the modern world. The ancient world was that but so much worse, right? Because you don't have antibiotics. I'm a Victorianist, so I read all the time about kids dying from stuff in Victorian novels because, you know, ear infections, go systemic, and now you're dead. (laughs) Stomach flus that cause you to die from dehydration as you're puking and pooping out your guts. All of the things we don't have to deal with today thanks to the miracles of science that have given us antibiotics and cancer treatments and surgeries that can sew things up and blood transfusions. Isaac was vulnerable from the beginning because he's a human being. And I wonder if what allowed Abraham to take Isaac up there was that he knew 
that the only safe place for him was in the hands of God. Because he can try all he wants to protect Isaac, the only son he has left. He can do everything in his power to keep him close, to love him, to make sure that marauding bandits don't get him, that an ear infection doesn't get him, that he's got clean water to drink, but in the end, you can't keep your kids safe. And it's a devastating moment as a parent when you realize there is nothing you can ultimately do to keep your kids safe. From other people, from nature, from the bad decisions your children might make. For those of you with parents out there, these are the things they think about as you're away at college too, just so you all know. <laughs> this, is, this is what we go through when we let other humans into our lives this way. But God intervenes on behalf of those who are vulnerable, and now it's his son who is vulnerable. And so perhaps the only safe place for him is on the altar. Because in the end, what can Abraham do? Look, if God's going to take this kid, he's going to do it on the altar, or he'll do it through one of the bazillion other ways that kids can die. What choice, does, what, what choice really is there? Trust the God who gave life? or try to hold on to it knowing that anything else can come in and intervene anyway. And I think that's why Abraham is able to do what he does. I think that's why Abraham's able to take that walk up Mount Moriah. Not because his faith is so great, not because he doesn't feel all the same sorts of things that we all feel, but because he knows the character of God. And although it doesn't make any sense, although it seems horrible, he knows the character of God and he trusts the God that he knows to intervene for the vulnerable and hopefully for his son. And God does, but it doesn't turn out the way I think Abraham would have liked because he's never got that same sort of, apparently, same sort of relationship with his son again. He comes down the mountain alone. But Isaac lives. And perhaps he has some comfort in watching and hearing from afar that Isaac is still alive, maybe even thriving, eventually having children of his own. And maybe God will make good on his promises, even if healing, even if salvation, even if all of those things don't quite look the way we wanted them to. When we read the Bible this way, we find that it is a much more emotionally kind of you know, visceral story than we sometimes let ourselves recognize. We realize that it's a much harder story than we sometimes want it to be, right? Like, number one, I don't want God to ask Abraham to sacrifice his son. Number two, I don't want Abraham to do it. And number three, well, okay, if all of that horrible stuff has to happen, I at least want them to like walk down the hill hand in hand, skipping and singing praise songs. It, <sighs> this is a hard text. But when we read the Bible this way, the other thing we start to see is a God who is trustworthy even in the most inexplicable of moments. And a God who is still somehow making things work according to his good plan, even when in my immediate circumstances they haven't quite worked out the way I want them to. And you know what, I'm actually thankful for that because you know, that sounds a lot more like my real life. My real life doesn't end up tidied up with a nice bow where everyone lives happily ever after and there's the kiss and the fade to black and the, you know, uh, violins playing and everything happy. My real life looks a lot more messy and a lot less satisfying sometimes. 
And stories like this tell us that even when things seem messy and less satisfying and, oh, did you also notice Abraham didn't go back to where Sarah was either? And when she dies, she's in a different place about a day's walk away from where Abraham is apparently now living. Even when things seem like a mess, even when our families are broken, even when our kids don't end up where we want or how we want, even when our dreams don't seem to work out the way we thought they were going to, stories like this tell us that God is still there. He's still at work. And maybe most importantly, that he actually sees what we're going through, the God who sees us. He sees what we're going through, and he loves us in the hard stuff. Because really what this story is about is about the character of God. He's not a safe God. He is not an easy God. But he's a good God and a loving God who will somehow bring things to his purposes. So that's a bit of what it looks like to read the Bible as literature. We have about four minutes for questions. Does anyone have any like burning questions you want to ask about how you read the Bible as literature or take me to task for my horrible misrepresentation of Abraham and Isaac or anything else? Yeah. That's a great question. So like, how do I do this basically, right? Yeah. Um, number one, you have to read a lot or watch a lot of movies. Do you guys like, like movies and TV shows? Yes, I'm seeing some nods. Um, think about the way that you'd watch a movie or watch a TV show or, or read a novel, right? Like, character is one of the first and always best ways in. Do you like this character and would you make the same choices? Two really low-hanging questions that are actually really um, productive as readers. Like, do I like Abraham? Whew, I don't know. Do I like David? Definitely not after he rapes Bathsheba. Do I like Paul? Sometimes, sometimes no. You know, like, opening up those questions, like, do I like these characters? Um, and then asking the questions that like, seem kind of, how do I say, like irreverent or like the ones that you know might have gotten you in trouble in Sunday school, but you know is a real question, say it. Absolutely, because those are usually the questions everyone else is thinking too, but is afraid to ask. So my first reaction when I started to realize how messy the Bible actually was, honestly, it was relief. And here's why. I was at a stage in my life where my own life was really messy. Um, I'd been in a really abusive relationship when I was in college that had led to a lot of really awful life choices and life experiences. Um, I didn't think I had a place in... in churchy type stuff, or if I did, it was always going to be kind of on the side because of what I had been through and what I had done. And it, there was a tremendous amount of relief that, oh, if these are what the stories of God's people look like, like then maybe my story also has a place. But I think that's something that until you have known the depth of your own potential for failure, <laughs> and the depth of everyone else's potential for failure and hurting you and you hurting them, maybe you can't quite appreciate. But so yeah, relief was the first. And then where do I connect Jesus into all of this? I am constantly amazed and grateful 
that this is the messy world that Jesus comes into. And that God knows this is what it's like, and this is what he comes down to see, this is what he comes down to be a part of. Not our perfect world, not our put-together world, not our world with answers, but our world that's a mess with questions and problems. That's where the incarnation takes place. God wants to dwell with God's people. And, you know, it's a messy thing to do. We can hurt God tremendously just like he can hurt us tremendously. And seeing that, I think, um, makes me appreciate what Jesus does all the more. This video podcast is a production of George Fox Digital. To find more material like this, you can subscribe to George Fox Talks on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you listen to podcasts. Our team really appreciates your feedback in the form of likes, comments, and reviews, and we'd really love to hear what you think. To sign up for our weekly email list and to keep up to date with the latest episodes and publications, you can check us out on the web at georgefox.edu talks. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you in the next episode.